Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast where we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year, and then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012, and it is now the 23rd day of August 2016, and I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording this from a Sully Baseball studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager Bob Belvin, and just down the 101 from AT&T Park, the home of the San Francisco Giants. Hey, um, do you know what you're listening to right now? You know how I said I did, I've done this every single day since October 24th? Well, the fact that it's the 23rd day of August is not the thing that's significant. The thing that's significant is that this is episode number 1,400. 1,400 straight days with a damn podcast. And without missing a day. Now, I'm... There have been days I've recorded more than one, and I've played them back to it. But every day, if you've been listening to me for the last 1,400 straight days, and you say, I wonder what Sully has said. Did Sully have something new to say today? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. And I'm going to keep it going. We're going to reach uh, sometime around Christmas time, we are going to be at the 1,500 show. And I had a big show for the 1,000th. Um, hey, let me know if uh, what you want me to do for 1500 Should I do another live show? Should I do something on location? Uh, should I turn this into a, a media empire? Let me know. Because clearly, I'm enjoying doing this. And if you know people who, lo- who would like this show, please, please, please pass it around. Let's get some people. Let's turn this into, by the time the next season begins, let's turn the Salvation with Daily Podcast into one of the great empires in the history of daily baseball podcasts. Hey, not only is it episode number 1400, and thanks for those of you sticking around and for those of you who are new, hey, um, yeah, welcome aboard. Uh, I'm going to, this is a lot of times on Tuesday, uh, super fan, Cubs fan with an eight who lives out there in Switzerland, listens to me every damn day. Uh, he, he writes me a lot of questions, and Tuesdays are days to spend with Cubs fan with an eight. So, hey, episode 1400, I'm going to take a question from Cubs fan with an eight. Uh, follow him on Twitter at C-U-8-S-F-A-N. In other words, it's Cubs fan, but instead of a B, it's an eight. Ergo, Cubs fan with an eight. There you go. I really, really put my back into that name for him. Um, what was one? He gave me one that was really, really good. And I have, I'm going to scroll through it here. And, oh, here we go. Cubs fan with Nate knows that I love to talk about parallel universes, alternate realities, how lo- the universe could have zigged or instead of zagged or zagged instead of zigged. And so he brought a question up to me. Whose career would you like to see played out in a parallel universe had there not been injuries or mismanagement? He brings up some possibilities like um, Kerry Wood, Mark Pryor. Obviously, he's a Cub fan. They're going to be up front. Tony Caniliero, Mark Fidrich. It's an interesting question 
Because we see players whose careers get cut short, sometimes by injury, sometimes by neglect, sometimes some other, some, for a few, even death. Now, the ones that are cut short by death are kind of an obvious one. Um, obviously, two of the most famous deaths in the history of baseball were two who had long careers of excellence and MVPs and world championships, and whose death came when they should have been fading out into the sunset as opposed to suddenly being taken from us. Uh, Lou Gehrig, of course, is the most obvious one, and Roberto Clemente is also the... Those are the two most obvious ones. And then you see there are players who had... Uh, you know, the one that comes to mind immediately is Lyman Bostock, who was a player for the Twins, and he was... He signed a free agent contract with the Angels and was... He was slumping, and he was he offered to give money back. You know, that's the kind of the person that Lyman Bostick was, and he was killed. He was shot. Uh, it was a um, it was like a drive by. It was a, it, he was not the um, I guess he wasn't the intended target. I don't think, but he was killed, and this was someone who was a uh, tremendous player in his last few years with the Minnesota Twins and may have turned things around in his time with the Angels. But, yeah, the last week of the 1978 season, Lyman Bostock died. And when you have something like that, you just wonder, you know, should, you know, could there have been a great career? And could there have been someone who was, and by all accounts, Lyman Bostock was a, you know, a man of, of qual- you know, quality person, a man of good character. And the fact that he was only 27 years old when he was killed, playing for the Angels and playing for a team that was on the verge of really doing something special. I mean, he was, a, you know, he was an outfielder, uh, primarily a right fielder, but, but also a center fielder as well. And the Angels were starting to put it together in 1978. And by 1979, they were a playoff team with players like Carew, like Gritch, like Carney Lansford, like Don Baylor, who won the MVP that year. He probably wasn't the MVP of the league, but let's get you know, at the time he was the MVP. Probably Bobby Gritch had a better season. You know, Willie Mays Aikens, you had, you know, Nolan Ryan was still on the team. You know, it was, it was a good team that they had and to include someone like Lawman Bostock onto the club. And I'm not saying that would have made him better than the Baltimore Orioles. Would not would have would not have probably taken him over the hump and and send him into the postseason or into the World Series. But you know you can't help but wonder what would have happened with someone like that. Now there's a few that come to mind. You know Tony Canigliaro, Tony C, as someone who grew up in Boston, he was someone who was man. He was the absolute epitome of someone who was just worshipped by Red Sox fans when I was a kid. I mean, the, the, the idea of who Tony C. was. And if you don't know who Tony C. was, Tony Canigliaro was a kid from Revere, Massachusetts, went to St. Mary's High School in Lynn, Massachusetts. He was a local kid who came up with the Red Sox when the Red Sox 
were re- there really wasn't a lot of reason to cheer for the Red Sox. The people forget there was a period of time when there wasn't Red Sox Nation. The Red Sox were playing in front of an empty house. They were non-contenders. And a 19-year-old kid with an Italian name, there's a lot of Italian people living in the greater Boston area, and impossibly handsome, hit 24 homers before he was 20 years old. By age 20, he led the league in home runs with 32. He hit 28 home runs in 1966, and in 1967 was still slugging away at 20. He was putting together, you know, he had over 100 home runs before his 23rd birthday. He was and doing it in a pitcher's era and then was hit in the face by a pitch from uh, well, playing the California Angels. And he came back in 1969 and actually had a very good year in 1970. He wound up hitting 36 home runs. But after that, he faded out and played a handful of games in 1971 and, and played a f- about 21 games with the Red Sox in 1975, and that was it. And then he died in... 1990. It wasn't related to the injury he had. But that period, that's a career that I would like to see because he was, it was a freak accident getting hit in the face. And he would have been part, it would, that, that one two punch of Yaz and Tony C, two guys from the Northeast, you know, the, the, one's a right handed slugger, the other's a left handed pure hitter. You know, Yaz wound up winning the Triple Crown. You had just this impossible middle of the order, Tony C. and Yaz, and the Red Sox who came within one win of winning the World Series in 1967, if that had happened, I mean, Tony C. was this beloved figure anyway, but he would have been the stuff of legends. It would have, that would, just to see what would have happened, not only to help to see the Red Sox win the World Series in 1967, but see, how many home runs would he have had? I mean, he hit 166 home runs in basically six seasons. That's basically what he did. His his average season over, you know, he was in his, you know, he was going to be hitting 30 some on home runs a year at a time when that really meant something. And it was a you know fastball to the face, boom, stonk. Derailed the wonderful career. And I think Tony C is is definitely one and. Of course, Mark Fidrich, who I think is, again, another person who died, and another person from Massachusetts. And so, I mean, I'm not just pulling this because I'm a native New Englander, but what Mark Fidrich meant, that, you know, in 1976, you had someone who was that good. He had, a, he had substance. He finished second in the Cy Young voting. You know, pitched a ton of innings, completed 24 of his starts. You know, had a tremendous season, was having a solid season the second year as well. And that he was fun. He was funny. You watched him because, A, because he was good, but also because he was fun. And until you can't bring up Mark Fidrich without people smiling. But he really had... A season and a half. And after that, he pitched 
a grand total of like 15 games after that over the next three years, and he was done. He was done by the time he was 25 and moved back to western Massachusetts where he dug swimming pools. And, of course, the injuries that he had would be so easily fixed today. Just a simple surgery, and he would have been back on the mend. Instead, it ruined his career. So, yeah, I would love to have seen that to see if he would have continued along those lines. You know, Kerry Wood and Mark Pryor, of course, he, you know, Cubs fan with an eight brings that up. And, I, you know, how much of that is can be blamed on Baker? How much of that is just, you know, you see arms being blown out. No matter how carefully you, you baby them or don't baby them. I mean, Steven Strasburg's back on the disabled list. You couldn't possibly be more careful. You know, Matt Harvey's on the disabled list. And who knows when he's going to be back. So, I mean... There was that window of opportunity. The great, you know, the great lesson is that Wood and Pryor had that one window of opportunity. And, you know, I think that you had uh, 2003, and that was basically it. You know, I, the one, you know, David Clyde, who was brought up way too fast, you know, as a, as a gimmick promotion, ruined his career. Todd Van Poppel, who was supposed to be this great talent, this great pitcher, he was brought up too fast. I mean, you, you wonder about the players whose careers were ruined, you know, by, by overly eager management to try to get a, a big superstar up there. And, of course, they're the ones, I mean, we brought up Lyman Bostock, who had faced death. Well, then there was um, Thurman Munson, of course, the captain of the Yankees. Would he have been in the Hall of Fame? But there's an interesting thing. I, I was giving some thought about this. And this is where parallel universes are so tricky. Because you saw, I mean, like the, the way the career of Tony C. and Mark Fidrich were cut off. And so naturally, when we project them, we project them going forward. We project Tony Caniliero getting 500, 600, maybe 700 home runs. Right-hand hitter in Fenway Park. Imagine later on, he's paired with Jim Rice and blah, blah, blah. You know, oh, my God, we love Tony C. We think of Mark Fidrich if he stayed healthy year in and year out as a Cy Young contender. I'm going to bring up a couple of names. Don Manningly. Dale Murphy. Tim Lincecum. These are three players who at one point in their career were absolute cinches for the Hall of Fame. Lincecum, what, he was what, 25, 26, had already won two Cy Young Awards and led the Giants to a championship and was back in the All-Star game the next year. Yeah, of course, they were going to build a statue for him, 55, already retired. All he had to do was stay healthy and pile up numbers. Don Manningly, rising from the ashes of the Bronx Zoo Yankee days, in the anarchy of the 1980s stood Don Mattingly putting up terrific year after terrific year using the, you know, the sabermetrics people, I understand some of the arguments against Mattingly, but at the time, the metrics that were being used at the time, he was looked upon as the elite offensive player. Dale Murphy, back-to-back -back MVPs, the hero of the Braves put up great numbers year in and year out, and said, obviously, he was the equal of Schmidt and Dawson. That, of course, he was going to be a Hall of Famer. Fernando Valenzuela. Imagine, just imagine this for a second. Let's just take Valenzuela. Imagine 
the way we would think about Fernando's career if he suddenly had a career-ending injury in 1986, or even 87. Well, well, 86 was his last really great year. And at that point, he had played in one, two, three, four, five, six seasons, six full seasons. He played a handful of games in 1980, but six full seasons. And that last season, you know, yeah, okay, no, no one likes to look at wins anymore, fine. But he, he got 21 of them. He got 20 complete games, which led the league. I don't go to the next year. He led the league in complete games that year as well. 269 innings in 86 to a 3.14 ERA. 251 innings the next year to a 3.98 ERA. If he had had a season-ending injury in 1986... Having Fernando Mania in 81, which was similar to the mania over Mark Fidrich. And, and at age 25, 21-game winner and everything like that, finished second in the Cy Young vote to Mike Witt. If he had had a career-ending injury right there, similar to what happened to Fidrich, we would be looking at Valenzuela saying, oh, my God he would have gone on to be a Hall of Famer. He would have been on along with Koufax and Drysdale and Don Sutton, all the Hall of Fame pitchers that the Dodgers have had over the years. But you saw there was a, there was a drop-off in 87. He was still a fine pitcher, but he was no longer the dominant ace. Injuries started to catch up with him in 88, and he was on the World Series team, but he didn't play in the postseason. And he had a thoroughly mediocre seasons in 89, in 90, even though he threw a no-hitter in 90. By 91, he was got basically was let go in 92, you know, played a little bit with the Angels, played in the Mexican League, played with the Orioles, the Phillies, had a decent year in San Diego one year, but wasn't great. And then kind of got kicked around, and by the end with the Cardinals in 97, he was terrible, and then he was done at age 36. He kicked around for another 10 years and never, ever was, I mean, forget it, an ace. wasn't even like a, was a number, you know, a couple of years was a number, th maybe three or maybe four starter. But you project him out, you're like, oh, he was going to be great. He was going to be amazing. But alas, he wasn't. It's very difficult to project that. Don Mattingly, when Don Mattingly was, had his great peak, and then after 89, the back injuries started catching up with him. He was still a gold glover. He was still beloved, and he was still a good hitter, but he wasn't a power hitter anymore. He was hurt a lot. He saw, you know, he, I mean, maybe hurt a lot is a strong term because, he, you know, he did wind up. He was a full-time player in his last four seasons, but he was no longer the dominant player. And there was that sense that people were rooting for Manningly, the same way Giant fans were rooting for Lincecum, the same way that Dodger fans always rooted for Valenzuela because of what they meant. And they wanted him to be great again. They still saw him as the great player. They, Giant fans still saw Lincecum as the great pitcher. Dodger fans still saw Valenzuela 
as the as Fernando Mania, Yankee fans to the end. They didn't want Tino Martinez to show up and said, no, 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 this is Donnie Baseball's team. And you saw similar things with Atlanta Braves fans and how they felt about, um, well, what's his name, Dale Murphy, and how his career just fell off a log. That he went from being the dominant player, then suddenly, no, then he just became a, you know, low average, high strikeout slugger who played with the Phillies and kicked around to the Rockies, and by the end, he was faded out. If you, if, if Murphy had a career-ending injury in, say, 87, people are like, oh, my God, if he had stayed healthy. If only he had stayed healthy. So it's difficult to project because it, projecting is a double-edged sword in terms of a word. We want to project where their career is going, but we also project what we think and feel about them. We want, to, we want them to continue that high level of play. We see that high level of play from some players. I'm not going to bring up Bonds or Clemens because some of you will throw your iPhone at the wall if I say that. Okay, how about Nolan Ryan? How about Eddie Murray? How about those two who continue playing at a high level deep into their career? Or the people who compiled stats deep in their career like Craig Biggio, okay? People wish for about steroids about him. It's not the point. What I'm saying is it's, it's fun to project, but you have to remember what we're doing while we're projecting. We're projecting our own thoughts that their careers are going to continue on a trajectory. And you wonder if the thoughts of what a player would be, how great they'd be, adds to the lore as opposed to the sometimes the awkwardness of seeing a great player fall off by the wayside. I'll tell you the one I'd want to see. The one I would love to have seen, and this was health again, this was health, is J.R. Richard. J.R. Richard, by age 26, had really figured it out. And he was the most dominant pitcher in the National League for a period of time. Nobody struck out more batters than him. 303 in 1978, 313 in 1979. And he was on pace in 1980 to have an absolute monster season and to be paired alongside Nolan Ryan. And that he just dominated. He was going to probably win the Cy Young Award. Again, I'm projecting. But he was playing at such a high level. And the idea of Ryan and Richard being a one-two punch, you know how close they got to within one swing of making it to the World Series in 1980. I have a feeling having J.R. Richard on the postseason roster may have been the difference of a run here and a run there, and the Astros would have won the pennant in 1980, and the Phillies would have to wait until 2008 to finally win a title. And he had a stroke shortly after the All-Star game in 1980, and he never came back. He tried to come back. He tried to make it back, and... It just didn't work. He pitched for a couple of minor league teams 
uh, in the Houston organization between 1982 and 1983. And he couldn't do it. For reasons totally unknown to me, he never had his number retired by the Houston Astros. This was someone who was on his way to being the dominant pitcher of the National League. And it was a stroke. And that's the one parallel universe I would love to see, to see that career unfold, because he was so much fun to watch. But again, I'm projecting that sometimes when we have our thoughts like this, I don't picture J.R. Richard falling off the cliff. I picture him going on alongside Nolan Ryan as the unstoppable one-two punch for the 1980s. And we project what he would mean to the team, not even thinking about some of the other forks in the road. I mentioned Thurman Munson earlier. What would have happened to him? I'll tell you what would have happened to him. He probably would have eventually left the Yankees. He wanted to play in Ohio. He spoke openly about wanting to be traded from the Yankees. He wanted to play, and he was probably going to be traded to the Indians, or maybe after Johnny Bench had to be removed from the catcher spot, he may have gone to Cincinnati, but he wanted to go to Ohio. Instead, he died a Yankee martyr, and he is the one player you don't mess with. As a Red Sox fan, you do not say bad things about Thurman Munson. So, it's difficult. Parallel universes are tricky, because you can really only predict them for a short period of time, and then they start to diverge. The realities start to get muddy. And as Valenzuela and Dale Murphy and Don Mattingly and Tim Lincecum have shown us, it's really, really difficult to project. But one thing that I will project is that in 100 days, I will do a podcast and it will be episode number 1,500. So Cubs fan with an eight, thanks a lot. There's some other questions. I've got them backloaded. Don't worry. I'll catch the next bunch of Tuesdays. Don't you worry about a thing. But you can go to MLBReports.com. To see the up-to-date listings of who owns baseball, go to sellybaseball.com. Like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram. I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. And hey, I have as many episodes in the can as former Red Sox left fielder Mike Greenwell had hits in the major leagues. 1,400. Think about that. Think about the significance of that. This has been the Solid Baseball Daily Podcast, episode number 1,400 for the 23rd day of August, 2016. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Project me all you want, and you can call me Sully.